So, gents, it's July 30th, 3 p.m. Why'd you say July like that? Eastern Standard Time. Oh, boy. I think from here on out, we should <laughs> talk without a script. <laughs> See what the hell comes of it? Yeah. All right. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the Worst of All Possible Worlds, the first and only podcast to talk without a script. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Bryans. And I'm the worst of all possible Joshes. And today we are incredibly excited to be joined by a guest who many of you may have heard of, those of you who are in the world of theater. He is the Pulitzer Prize winning and Tony Award winning author of A Strange Loop, which is uh, currently receiving its uh, London premiere at the Barbican. Michael R. Jackson. Hey, everybody. You're you're our fifth Pulitzer winner on the show. You know, no big <laughs> yes. deal. We've we've had a few. <laughs> yeah, we've had you, a few. No, you, you are, are what very we call first in the, in the in the podcast industry a good get. So yeah. welcome, Michael. <laughs> All right, I'll try to live up to it. We're here to talk about the musical Rent. Uh, you know, the seminal. 1996 classic written by Jonathan Larson. Uh, and Michael, I reached out to you uh, through our mutual friend Trevor of the sh- wonderful Champagne Sharks podcast because we've been wanting to talk about Rent for a while. It's a musical that is like really core to a lot of people's experiences. And given that you obviously have been in musical theater, have written a fan- number of fantastic musicals of your own, we were interested in talking with somebody who also sort of knows what making a musical looks like and what you had said before we rolling this episode is that you actually had not really watched the show since you were a teenager and went back and rewatched mm. it again just for this episode right yeah that i mean i, I had, had listened to it and heard songs and stuff but i had never seen i think i missed all the revivals of it that had happened right and so i only have ever seen it as a teenager when a tour of it came through my hometown of detroit michigan Coming back to it then for the first time here, what did you first notice in terms of like the structure of it? What jumped out at you and just generally how it felt going back to it again? Well, one thing I noticed about the structure of it, which, you know, it's always easy to forget that he sort of takes some inspiration and adaptation from La Boheme, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that this piece very much is a kind of pop opera or rock opera the characters emotions and the storytelling very much has those operatic elements to it even though you're in a rock 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 idiom or punk rock idiom that was just something interesting for me to think about as i was watching it play out scene by scene song by song because the emotions in this thing are very operatic and a lot of i think the plot beats themselves i've always had this struggle with rent where it is so gritty and in like the dirt of it for so much of it and then there's just a couple of moments where it's like oh and then lobo m happens for a little bit and then we go back to rent and then it's lobo m again when you saw it had you heard a musical like it before was there was this like the first sort of like big rock opera that you had encountered in your life the only other thing that i could compare it to is the other one named musical hair sure yeah 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 Yeah. was which I was a big fan of. I'd never seen Hair. Well, I think I'd watched the movie, but like, oh sure, I, it's not the my same. Pri- <laughs> my primary 
association with it was the cast album, yeah. the original Broadway cast album. Yeah. Which I yeah. like is my one of my favorite things to listen to. Yeah. And so that was the only other sort of thing that it reminded me of. Yeah. Were you already a big like musical theater head by the time that you were seeing Rent or uh, was Rent uh, like a, 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 a step on that path? The gateway drug. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I was pretty into musicals because I like okay. did children's theater oh, as okay. a kid. Any memorable roles? Into the Woods Jr., perhaps? <laughs> no, I, so I didn't get in, I didn't get uh, exposed to any Sondheim until college. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah. yeah, so I, my biggest role, I was in this theater, this children's theater group called the Paperback Productions. Ooh. The biggest part I had was Gonzorgo in Babes in Toyland. Obscure musical that I think might have been made into a movie that I have not seen. But yeah, that yes. was my biggest part. Toyland, Toyland, Happy Girl and Boyland. Yeah. Is there yeah. is there footage, Michael? Is there is there somewhere no, in the bowels of YouTube? I mean, some... it, maybe somebody <laughs> has a VHS somewhere in their basement. Yeah, sure, but sure. I, I don't have it. But I was in that. I was in Snoopy. I played Franklin, of course. Nice. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and I had four lines, and two of them got cut, of course. What? And Why? Why would they cut that's them? fucked up? I'm I'm calling <laughs> Tams Whitmark. We're gonna get this hand right. <laughs> um, and then I was like a townsperson in the Wizard of Oz. So I loved musicals. Like I I was really into them. That was my exposure was primarily that. But then Rent I became aware of because in memory serves me, Seasons of Love was actually literally played on the radio. Yeah, yeah, they had a radio yeah. edit. So I was like, ooh, like a musical theater song from the musical on a, on the radio. And then that same year that I saw it, which was what probably would have been 97, Neil Patrick Harris was mm. in the L.A. tour and he went on Rosie O'Donnell, who was always oh, having musicals yeah, on her show. Yeah. And so I first really got into it because I saw him on Rosie O'Donnell and, okay. I, and, and he sang What You Own. And I just was like, ooh, I never heard anything like it sounded like, you know, rock music that was on the radio mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I was getting into at that time. And so it made me really want to see it. And so I like begged my dad and begged my dad and begged my dad. To buy <laughs> I was like, there are tickets. I heard it's coming to the Fisher. I've got to see it. 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 Oh, and wow. he, he got me tickets for me and two, two of my friends. He wasn't in it when I saw it. I don't I don't remember who was in it. Like so much about yeah. seeing it was a blur. For yeah, me, right. I just remember yeah. the impact that it left, right? I, I mean, yeah, I just remember just being really excited, but I have to see Rent because yeah. it's on Rosie O'Donnell, because Doogie Hauser was in it, because it's <laughs> on the radio. Like, nothing about like what it was about yeah. transmitted to me on any level. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I never actually saw Rent at all until I saw the recording that we watched for this episode, which is the final Broadway performance. They put it on tape. Yeah. I had heard the cast recording and I had it on rotation in high school. Specifically, uh, What You Own and Another Day were like the two that I 
kept listening to over and over again same yeah okay yeah, well, um, yeah. i i so my exposure to it was the movie because okay. the movie came out the same time I was sort of Whoa. discovering musical theater. Oh, no. Uh, I was doing so Into the Woods rare. in high school, and Rent came out that winter, and I think I didn't see it until it was out on DVD. I wasn't exactly obsessed with it. Uh, <laughs> but I, but it's I saw hard to get into the movie. It's really the hard thing to is, get like, into the movie. For the, what I remember, for the trailers, they just played Seasons of Love, and that's right. just such a fucking grabber of a song that you're like yeah. oh I want to I want to see what the rest of this is and yeah. the movie has its bright points and having finally like actually sat down and seen the whole Broadway version of the show there are some very good cuts that were made by director mm. Chris Columbus and whoever else he had on his team so what you're saying is you do have to hand it to him you have to hand some things to him okay you don't have to yeah. hand it my sister gave me the highlights from Rent. So I didn't hear oh, the entirety yeah. of the yeah, show. There, there were like six albums. It was so confusing. You either got like the full off Broadway or like the highlight off Broadway or the full Broadway or the highlight Broadway right. or the yeah, full there, movie or the highlight a lot movie. Of, a lot of different <laughs> versions. But I, I only heard the highlights of it. So I didn't know okay. any about any of like the cool choral stuff that sort of happens in between. Mm -hmm. I did voicemails. Yeah. And also um, it's beginning to snow, I think is the name of the song. But like mm -hmm. that big one that leads in into um, Jump Over the Moon. I don't even think yeah. Jump Over the Moon is on the highlights. Like, they cut really? that, which is wild. I would, I would cut that for the oh, highlights, well, we'll get personally. to that. I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts on Jump Over the Moon. But I became obsessed with it because it was just like, again, like Michael, you were saying, it was like nothing, you know, I'd, I'd really ever heard before and so I got really into it and I got all I was pretty much a rent head up through midway through high school and I remember the exact moment when I stopped because my good friend Matt had gotten sick and he went home with the flu and he was there for five days and he was new to the theater program he was new to theater but we were always talking about this show rent 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 mm -hmm. rent 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 we're not going to pay rent he decided rent. that what what he would do is listen to the cast recording on loop uh, until he got better so he oh. could learn the show and bond with us. So okay. he did. He memorized the entire <laughs> cast recording and he came back to school and he was like, hey guys, you want to sing La Vie Boheme? And I remember all of us turned to him and said, oh, actually we're into Spring Awakening now. And oh, he was devastated. The ultimate betrayal. <laughs> to this day, wow. he can still do La Boheme uh, Love you, I'm just completely off book. And he's, <laughs> he's never forgiven me. I, I actually was shocked by the immensity of that betrayal, AJ. And I just uh, wanted to pull the room to see if we think that um, AJ's friend ought to forgive him for that horrible, horrible betrayal. I say no. No. What do you think, Michael? I don't understand why they're mutually exclusive. Brent Spring Awakening? <laughs> well, I guess what I mean is like, one he came back, time. He, so like he came, so wait, he came back, you know, yeah. five days later and y'all yeah. had moved on to another musical? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rent. Well, so Spring Awakening, the album had just dropped. I think like while he was sick. So when he came back, when he came back, he thought we were still into Rent. It's just like no, we were singing totally fucked, like at the top of our lungs. That's wild. Um, <laughs> I, I, but, but Michael, but Michael, um, uh, do, do you forget? Do you forgive me for it? Is the question. Like, should I be forgiven? I don't know. That's like a really <laughs> fickle. Like that's a. It's that that's that reminds me of the Wiz. Like when he's like the the color is gold. Oh yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. And then be caught dead in red. You know? <laughs> oh no. Damn.
Oh, AJ, well, you've been canceled. This is I'm going sorry. Great. This is going great. Let's uh, let's go ahead and just uh, do a real quick primer for those who are not familiar with Rent about where this show came from. Um, so Jonathan Larson, a man who was born on February 4, 1960 in White Plains, New York, playwright, musical theater creator, lived in the East Village and did his best to try to get uh, his shows yeah. off the ground. Lived, lived in a building with no heat uh, yep. where he kept himself warm in the winter using a fucking wood-burning stove yep. that he and his roommate hauled up. In Soho. Oh, really? It was Soho? It was in the, not the he East Village? in Soho. Oh, okay. The first big piece that Jonathan Larson sees some success with is a show called Tick, Tick, Boom. This yep. is a semi-autobiographical musical, which he first performs at Second Stage in 1990, uh, yep. and then performs as well at New York Theater Workshop in 1992 and 93. And as a result yep. of this show... He gains the attention of a young up and coming theater producer named Jeffrey Seller. And mm. if you're familiar with Jeffrey Seller, it's because he would go on to produce Rent as well <laughs> as, of course, more recently, Hamilton. I mean, he's a very nice man. He seems to have really good instincts for this. Yeah. Incredible yeah. instincts. Smart Jeffrey, cultivator of talent. Jeffrey yeah. is very, very smart and good at what he does. Yes. Mm. And so as a result of these performances, Seller's like, hey, what do you want to do? And Jonathan Larson tells him, well, I've got this show in mind where we take uh, the opera La Boheme by Puccini and mm -hmm. we basically update it and set it in Alphabet City now. Now, of yeah. course, being the year 1992. It finally receives its first full production in 1996 at New York Theater Workshop. And then on January 25, 1996, Jonathan Larson drops dead. Right, right as it's about to begin previews, its first preview. And so they go on, they do the first preview. They pretty much just sing it through uh, rather than like fully doing it, doing it is my understanding. Because Jonathan Larson died that morning. He likely had Marfan syndrome. Right. The uh, stress, of course, of putting on a new musical was getting to him. He was experiencing extreme chest pains, went to two different doctors at two different hospitals, both of whom said it's probably the stress or one said maybe you have influenza. They had gotten some chest x-rays, which are not great at identifying aortic aneurysms, which is what he had. And so my mother he, had an aortic section. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, he survived. He survived. Right. But like it was just when yeah. I read that, I was like, because like that's John Ritter died in the aortic section. Mm -hmm. Tim mm -hmm. Russert yeah. died in the aortic dissection. It's like a very 50 50 kind of thing. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to look for. Um, yeah. But if you have what, what's interesting is if you look at pictures of Jonathan Larson, he's like a textbook Marfan case. So a doctor who is aware of the sort of physical features that right. that correlate with Marfan syndrome would know you can do things like checking blood pressure on the right arm and the left arm and seeing if it's lower. I had an uncle who had an aortic dissection and that's how they found out. But he, you know, he was told, yeah, it's probably just nerves. Go home, drink some tea, go to bed. And that's what he did. And and died suddenly overnight. The show goes on as it does. Yeah. And they, they, as you said, Josh, they do the sing through because they're right. uh, they get permission from Larson's family to go ahead and do the preview because that's right. You know, they said that's what Jonathan would have wanted. And they sit at tables because they don't know if they're going to be able to do the choreography. They're just so like wrought with grief. Yeah, right? they I can't hit. imagine. <laughs> yeah. And then they hit La Vie Boheme. And they're so infected by the music, they literally throw the tables off stage and they just do the rest of the show fully blocked. The off-Broadway run immediately sells out, plays its entire run at Theater Workshop. Uh, you know, Seller just transfers it immediately to the Nederlander immediately. Theater. Re remember, the first preview off-Broadway starts at the end of January. It is on Broadway opening at the end of April. 
if I can just say one thing somewhat cynically about this, this isn't me yeah. ignoring anything, but having right. gone through Broadway, yeah. it would have needed to do that in order to be eligible for Tony. Right. Yes, that's exactly it. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that was that was when I realized because I was watching the Tony Awards and watching the the awards going to Jonathan Larson. And they said, oh, Jonathan Larson passed five months ago. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like it, yeah. the transfer really moved. They didn't wait until the next season to get it up. They they put it up right then to make it eligible for that year's Tonys. Musicals in the mid '90s were really suffering. The year before, there were two musicals nominated for best that was musical: it? Smokey Joe's Cafe and Sunset Boulevard. Oh wow! They even have a joke. Wow. Andrew Lloyd Webber goes up and he presents the award for best musical to rent, and he says it's, it's a really great honor to present the award for best musical in the Tonys 50th year. And first, the good news. This year, there are some nominations to read out. It wins the trifecta, musical, book, and score. Then it wins the Pulitzer Prize for drama. Michael, this this is an experience that you are familiar with, of course. The, mm-hmm. the Tony Awards, and, and as well as the Pulitzer. This, this is something Jonathan Larson was never able to actually experience. He got the Pulitzer post- yeah. posthumously. What What is that experience like? Um, I mean, it's sort of crazy, like, just thinking through some of this and, like, weird parallels. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is very macabre, but, like... If he had lived, I wouldn't have won the Jonathan Larson grant yeah, for right. Strange Loop, which sort of set me on a certain path. And yeah. so, like, I owe, like, such a huge debt to his legacy. And also, I think just the musical itself, because it sort of, like, came along and was, like, a strange new thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, f- and, you know, f- written from, like, a personal point of view and and the writer had written book music and lyrics and I so then I win the Pulitzer two months after a global pandemic right <laughs> breaks out <laughs> oh, so, like, God. so it, it's weird and which weirdly makes me think about rent and AIDS and death and yeah. all of these things so Strange Loop was is the only musical technically to win the Pulitzer without having a Broadway mm. house announced. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, I yeah, guess, yeah. Though I guess technically Brent kind of got close to it. Yeah. Or something. There's some technicality where yeah. you could be like, you could grouse and say, well, actually, Brent was the first. But all of that is to say it was a strange experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I wasn't thinking about the Pulitzer. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't tell you until you win. No, right. You, it's, yeah. you just it's always find, you a find out. You just find out the day that it's announced. They just give you a yeah. phone call or something. What's the... Well, the thing is, I don't know how people found out before you must have gotten a phone call but yeah, like letter. now it's like on you can watch it online okay oh, and okay sure a friend of mine who i was on the phone with was watching it while we were on the phone but i didn't know <laughs> that he was watching it okay. and so then he he told me that i had won and then, like, and, like, and then like right when that happened my phone just started blowing up oh man well, i remember oh, sondheim talked God. about that when he won for sunday in the park with george he and james lapine were working on merrily we roll along the revisions to merrily we roll along they were like in a rehearsal and someone came in and was like hey you won the pulitzer and they were like cool it's very anticlimactic in that way because yeah. whatever you're doing like you can't just 
drop everything to do anything about it. And yeah. in my case, I really couldn't drop everything to do about it because we couldn't be around each other. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. You couldn't even so, go out to a bar to oh, celebrate. Man. No, it's like, I mean, oh my God. So I just, I went Get for on a, a Zoom walk. Call. Yeah. I went for a walk, listened to music. I came back. <sighs> Some people from the Strange Loop team had sent drizzly champagne to my yeah. house Aww. and Aww. we got on a zoom and we had a little toast well, after the restrictions were lifted do you ever go out and like actually have like a big pulitzer blowout um or? so the pulitzer people like two years later did a joint class of 2020 and 2021 oh, okay. thing oh nice thing at columbia so cool. then we were able to to do it that way do pulitzer winners know how to party is my question <laughs> was it like a- uh, it, it was pretty, it was a lot of booze and a lot of food, but it was pretty okay. low key, all mm. things considered. Sure. sure. Well, that sounds like a party to me. You yeah. know what is not low key? Yes. Is the beginning of the musical Rent. We might as well get right into <laughs> right. talking about the show itself. Because at the beginning of Rent, we got, we got Mark and we got Roger. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark is an aspiring filmmaker. Roger is an aspiring musician. Roger has recently found out that he has AIDS and his girlfriend killed herself. And and he's been in rehab for seven months and has just gotten out. They're keeping the place warm by burning stuff and stealing electricity. And uh, Mark is also going through a breakup of his own. He's just been dumped by his girlfriend, Maureen. And Benny, their landlord, is demanding rent from him. And then Benny, the landlord, dressed as a Power Ranger villain, I will say. Uh, <laughs> and Benny's thing is, yeah, this this crazy like blue and chartreuse like winter jacket that he also wears regardless of what season it is. I think they're Oakley sunglasses. Yeah. Like just very Yeah, he uh, looks like he's on a ski trip at all times. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or, or in a in a Pepsi one ad. The, the stakes for the core protagonists are immediately established, right? Are they going to pay rent or not? What I didn't really track, again, just listening to the highlights growing up, is just how much setup there is before the song Rent, mm-hmm. before the title yeah, song. There's a rent. lot of recitative and not there's like a in the whole movie. monologue. Yeah, in the, the movie, movie, yeah, the movie starts, starts right away. Well, the movie starts with season of seasons of love and then fades into rent. Yeah. But nothing can really prepare you for the explosion of sound Mm -hmm. that happens when they say the power blows. And all of a sudden, just all the angst of Gen X is like weaponized and shot at you all at once. Yeah. It reminded me of Reality Bites. And MTV. And MTV. Jonathan Larson very famously wanted to bring musical theater to the MTV generation. Like, that was sort of his credo. And boy, howdy, the song slaps. You're strapped in. Like, you are in this completely new world of musical theater. It is one of the all-time great openers in musical theater. And, Michael, I know that in your show, you're opening for A Strange Loop. How many minutes till the end of it took you a while to dial that one in too and i'm curious to hear from you about like what is it that makes for a great opening number um well definitely establishing what you're going to be what ride you're getting on and just like getting the audience hype I think mm-hmm. and just excited yeah. about it. Like you really want to get the audience like 
buckled in and ready to go on that ride. You know, if I may say so, Michael, I don't think anyone in modern musical theater writes an opening like you. Like fucking strange, strange, strange loop. It's just like that's another one where you're just like, I'm I'm in for the ride of this thing. White Girl in Danger, one of the catchiest theme songs like I've ever, you know, (laughs) I've ever heard. And oh, my God, I need a cast album. I know. I know there's probably a lot of things getting in the way, but I need that White Girl in Danger cast album. We just went and laid down the band a couple of days ago. Oh, cool. Stay tuned. Oh, okay. Oh, is that? Oh, we got an exclusive. I was not anticipating an exclusive. It'll probably take a while because, like, scheduling all the singers is going to be a feat. Everybody sure. has different, their lives are, their their yeah. lives have moved on, but we got the band down and it sounds cool. really really great. Talking yeah. specifically about the song Rent in yes. Rent, the opening yeah. number. This does do all of those things very well that I think yeah. you pointed out, Michael. Like it, it explosively gets the audience on board. It gets you hype. You meet some more characters and you immediately understand what their mm-hmm. stakes are mm-hmm. as well. Uh, you've got Tom Collins. He is heading over to Mark and Roger's place, but ends up getting like beaten up. You've also got Joanne, Maureen's substitute production manager. Maureen, hey, of course, hey. being the Mark's former ex-girlfriend. girlfriend of mm-hmm. Mark. You know, we know who they are. We know what they want. And that's that's what matters, right? Knowing what people want. And without yeah. doing like an explicit I want song with mm-hmm. it. It's it's more about kind of defining them against something, right? We're, we don't have heat. We, we aren't making good stuff. Uh, we're yeah. burning all of our manuscripts. And we're just, we're not going to pay this rent. We're well, fucking not going to do I it. I mean, other shows have done this, but like it, the choice that he made was to sort of use the community, sort of make an ensemble opening. You very early on get the sense that this is, while it is about like these people and you have your main characters, it's sort of about the whole world. Yeah. 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 Or, or in this whole or this whole, whole community in the East Village. But the community kind of becomes the whole world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind mm-hmm. of what happens when you make a musical because you're sort of creating a universe with its own sensibility and its own logic. But like mm-hmm. it really does feel like it's the whole world. The people who are out and about on the streets, uh, many of whom are homeless or, you know, have other issues. They're also always going to be there sort of in conversation with What's going on to our protagonists? Yeah. And homelessness is very important as a theme yes. for this first act, especially. I didn't realize until someone pointed it out to me a few years ago that rent is supposed to be like a double meaning mm-hmm. for like having been rended. Like everything is rent in that fashion. It's yeah. the past tense of rend. It yeah. reaches um, way down deep and in, inside out until you're torn apart. You are rent. Yeah. yeah. Um, that, okay, I, I never caught that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> see, that's the thing. It's, just like, it's, it's a word we don't tricky. use. Yeah. So yeah. It's right. like, oh, okay, I get, okay. When okay. Larson was first designing Rent, he worked with a playwright named Billy Aronson, who was mm. sort of had the original idea of putting Puccini's opera in like modern day New York. And they collaborated on a couple songs. I think Aronson like has partial credit on Rent for us, uh, designing the original concept. He also wrote for Beavis and Butthead and Courage the Cowardly Dog. <laughs> that's neither here nor there, but it is very... <laughs> Very silly. Basically, uh, he was not sold on the idea of setting it in the East Village or on the title of Rent until Jonathan Larson was like, well, it is the past tense of Rent. And then he was like, I'm on board. I'm I'm 100 percent in. And it was like, no one's going to get it, man. No one's going to get it. And no one did. And it didn't matter. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Again, Tom Collins, having been beat up, meets another man 
Uh, and this is this is somebody known in the show as Angel, a very affectionate, open hearted, caring person. And Collins falls in love with Angel immediately. This yeah. is also where we get a back and forth that that you had mentioned before we started recording, Michael, which is where Angel says there's a life support meeting at 930. Yes, this body provides a comfortable home for the acquired immune deficiency syndrome. As does mine. Wow, we'll get along fine. This is something where if you're listening, your clock, it's like, oh, they're talking about AIDS. But I'm not sure that if you're not listening closely because of where this is placed, you might not immediately clock it. I mentioned this before we were recording that as a teenager seeing Rent, the fact that it had anything to do with AIDS went completely over my head, which I always felt very stupid about for Mm. many years until I just watched it for this podcast. (laughs) I was like, I "I know why it went over my head for two reasons. One Mm. is because they just sort of say that they have AIDS without talking about HIV. Mm -hmm. And it made me wonder if perhaps because of the time period this is written in and Jonathan Larson, I don't I don't know like what his backstory is and in, in terms of like how HIV AIDS affected him, but I wondered if perhaps there was some imprecise language that he chose to use. Because also because like I know someone, a very close friend of mine, passed away from AIDS related mm-hmm. stuff a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. which oh. did not so looking at these characters, I was like, these people are, are running around, don't seem like they have AIDS, but maybe they have HIV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. also like I the gotcha. peace progress is over a year. They're just there are questions around that and the way that that word is used mm-hmm. that I think also contributed to my confusion as a yeah. teenager of like, wait, what what's wrong with them? Or yeah. Like, what am, what am I tracking? Well, and this is something the movie, the the Chris Columbus movie, it doesn't dance around it in the same way. Like mm. I, I'm pretty sure that scene, which was recitative in in the show, in the movie, it's just spoken dialogue. And I think Angel just says, uh, "I have HIV" or "I have AIDS," and then Colin says, "Me too." And certainly, like being having the millennial experience of seeing it in like 2005 or 2006, everyone knew it as like not just like an AIDS play or an AIDS musical, but like the AIDS musical and to right. the point where there's a lot of like people think that Jonathan Larson died of AIDS before it opened right. and not right. that he died of, uh, you know, an aortic dissection. Um, yeah. And and so I went into it knowing that it was going to be about that and not not necessarily having the same sort of literacy that uh, an audience in New York in 1996 would necessarily have, you know, Angels in America had played on Broadway. You'd had, you know, the normal heart as is not to mention all other kinds of literature and just like the day to day understanding, seeing posters for, you know, act up and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also that like the larger like national consciousness of this musical was also somewhat shaped by Trey Parker and Matt Stone when they made the parody lease in Team America World Police. Because I think Team America was before the Rent movie. Oh, yes. 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 Quite a few years. Um, Yeah. yeah, And they they just sing the word AIDS over and over and over again. Yeah. And then... In 2019. (laughs) 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 
this does remind me of the infamous tweet from Chelsea Fagan where she said the other day a bartender told me his high school did a performance of Rent where they couldn't say AIDS so all the characters had diabetes. <laughs> oh, my oh my god, no. Anyway, Collins and Angel establish a bond very quickly. Like Collins is, is first of all, just very physically attracted to Angel. Like he mm-hmm. thinks he's hot. But yeah. also the fact that they both have AIDS gives them something to bond over. Now, again, Roger, our guitarist, our aspiring musician, also has AIDS. He got it from his girlfriend who killed herself. Yeah, he can't and afford rent, but he can afford bleach. That's true. He can, he can, <laughs> yeah. he, he can afford <laughs> Those very good bleach don't pay for themselves. They sure do. It's very cheap. It's, a, it's quite an inexpensive. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's trying to write <laughs> one great song. Glory beyond the cheap colored lights. One song before the sun sets. Glory on another empty life time flies time dies. i feel like it like many of the songs in the show is is more is kind of more about the music than the lyrics if that makes any sense mm-hmm. oh absolutely and, the, yeah. and sort of the emotionality of it it's very um i mean it's in a sort of rock idiom right I, every time i've ever listened to it I just sort of give over to the music of it. Mm-hmm. Singing about his sort of impending death. He yeah. wants to have like a song that means something that legacy. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a life that otherwise a, a hasn't legacy, meant anything, you know, before yeah. he dies. And mm-hmm. so in that it's so like, I think as an audience member, if you're able to really sort of connect that idea, that's not explicitly stated in terms of, a character's wants mm-hmm. that it's it's more of an expressionistic kind of rock song want. Yeah. It's very effective in that sense that the piece is a is a rock opera and there's like an internal sort of clock. And also fun fact, mm. it oh, used yeah. to be called Right Brain. Right brain. <laughs> that yeah, doesn't work. Right yeah. brain. <laughs> we all like laughed and laughed and laughed, and he did a rewrite of it. it. Really, is the importance of vowels? Yeah. Roger then has sung his feelings for us, and into this steps Mimi, who is uh, potentially going to be the subject of future desire. Because yeah. this, by the way, is lifted straight from Lobo M. This candle has has burned out, and she's she's looking for a light. She needs somebody to light her candle. Yeah, this is it's a sort of a, a meet cute. Right. You have these two characters who who have something in common. She's wanting to light this candle, not just to provide heat for herself, but also because she is looking to do some heroin this evening. Right. right. And yeah, I remember listening to this as a kid and the moment where he said, I hear Spike Lee shoot, uh, shooting down the street. I'm like, musical theater can talk about contemporary directors. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what a revolutionary thing. Uh, I also think this has one of the strangest lines in the show, which is you have big hands like my father's. And how interesting that it was Daphne Rubin Vega playing that part when in Les Miserables, she was Eponine who had tuberculosis. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She just can't catch a break. <laughs> Ruben Vega. After Mimi and Roger have their sort of meet cute and, whoa, maybe Roger has a reason to live now, right? We get a little bit more background on Joanne, uh, who is, again, Maureen's new girlfriend. Her mm. parents are pretty well-connected DC types. Um, we, mm. we sort of learned this about her, that her class positioning is probably a little higher than everybody else, honestly. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is a nuance that I actually miss. 
missed in previous viewings of this. Like it really I paid more attention to it this time around. Mm -hmm. And then Collins finally shows up at Mark and Roger's place. We learn that he got booted from MIT. He's going to start teaching at NYU instead. And he's brought Angel with him. And this is, of course, when we get Angel's big number today for you, tomorrow for me. And you should hear her beat. You earned this on the street. It was my lucky day today on Avenue A. When a lady in a limousine drove my way, she said, Darling, be a dear. Haven't slept in a year. I need your help to make my neighbor's yappy dog disappear. Angel is based on a character from Labo M named Chaunard, uh, who <laughs> made a lot of money because he was hired by an old man to play violin for his pet bird that was dying. So, so Shana provided a palliative care for that bird, and Jonathan Larson has twisted it into something even stranger than that. <laughs> yes. Because uh, Angel has been hired by an old lady to kill a dog by by playing the drums so much that it jumps off of a balcony to its death. Like it 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 is it is a character that is you know, that is being set up to be this sort of the martyr figure of the play, right? It, and and this sort of uh, beautiful, like, source of light and mm-hmm. life. And the first thing you learn about him is that he murdered a dog. <laughs> I get a sense that this song is actually sort of meant to be what is not really that popular in musicals anymore, but what's known as a charm song, in that it doesn't really advance the plot. It mm. doesn't really delineate character, but it's just meant to be entertaining mm-hmm. and sort yeah, of like... Sure. It endearing in some way. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, it's just, it, and there used to be a lot more of these kind of charm songs back in the day. I'm just a girl who can't say no kind of a yeah, thing. Yeah, like, it's like kind of falling, falling out of favor. Shapoopy. Yeah. yeah. Do you think it succeeds on that? Yeah, I mean, I think especially in setting Angel up as this sort of like heart and soul of the community, because mm-hmm. that so much is hung on on Angel as that kind of figure. And I mean, it's also just very impressive feats of like drumming and like choreography. Yeah, that's like true. Angel full leaps very up well. onto a table in heels. Like it's yeah. it's very visually impressive. And that's another iconic costume from Rent is the like Santa Claus getup uh, yeah. that, mm-hmm. that Angel is wearing during the scene. It is really, really something else. I think it's worth talking here a little bit about Angel um, and how uh, and gender identity and how mm-hmm. it is expressed in Rent. Yes. Um, Angel, more towards the second half of the play, you hear Angel referred to in the third, maybe just because you hear hear Angel referred to in the third person more often. Um, right. He and she are used somewhat interchangeably yeah. for this character. And I, I wonder, like, for, for me, certainly that was kind of a new concept mm. when I first saw Rent. It's interesting because Mark is our protagonist, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like our narrator is sort of right. our way into into this world and uh, at one point corrects himself when he gen- when mm-hmm. he genders yeah, the angel end, as a man the and then says no I, uh, she and and then I'm like oh okay so it actually was that uh, Angel's been trans this whole time and they've just all been sort of misgendering her but then Collins refers to him as a he right uh, mm-hmm. almost immediately afterwards so but also Angel also make when during my leave on when makes a joke about how they're brothers right yeah yeah yeah. so So, you know so and i think that there's been i'm not like at by any means a scholar on this but i feel like there's been a lot of conversations within the trans and gender non-conforming communities around what they believe 
Angel's gender identity is. Yeah. I don't know what the answer to that is. My suspicion is that it's probably non-binary. But yeah, I, I'd say like gender anarchy a little bit. Or like it's somewhere just around like, there. Yeah, yeah, use whatever pronoun you want mm. with me. I would prefer, um, you know. But yeah, it is interesting watching them all sort of grapple with it. Is this the sort of thing where maybe Jonathan Larson didn't fully know when writing the thing? Like what the, I wonder if it's a thing where it's a choice to do this or if it's more like maybe even Larson not being fully yeah. versed in sort of what gender identity or presentation might look like for somebody like Angel, maybe? It's probably a mixture. Like I think he yeah. probably didn't really know, but I also think that a lot of the language that we use today did not exist then. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like mm-hmm. even the or whatever composite of people that he based Angel on perhaps they probably were grappling with what language to use as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's even uh, again in La, La Vie Boheme where, you know, they, they sing that line faggots, lezzies, dykes, crossdressers, too. And they kind of highlight Angel on the line crossdresser. Right. Which, right. of course, wouldn't exactly be the same as, as as being trans. Also, they sang that line on the Tonys on live network television. I was amazed watching that clip. It's, it wasn't like Spring Awakening where they had to, you know, get rid of the word fuck. Uh, they they actually just sang faggots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also queers was used sort of more derogatory, yeah. In a yeah. more derogatory way than it might be today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it was like it was such a like I know with like we're here, we're queer, get used to it was itself such a transgressive phrase to adopt. Right. Yeah. I also I also do wonder about like Larson didn't have previews, you know, and he didn't get to do mm-hmm. his off Broadway tryout. And you wonder, like, what would have changed had he lived, you know, yeah. in Rent. And because Michael Greif, who was the director, sort of became like the sole artistic voice behind this thing as mm-hmm. soon as Larson died. And that's a huge responsibility. So I think for the most part, he'd wanted to get like kind of keep things as they are like sort of cast in this amber. But like, yeah. I do wonder if maybe Angel would have evolved as a character had we had that preview period or had we had there been the transfer to Broadway, like what would have changed? I'm truly not so certain because the only reason why I say that is because I think it's possible that would have happened if there's some production that happens next year or two years from now, there will be a voice in the room that's saying that we need to be clearer about this. Oh yeah. Is my guess. But I feel like in 1996, people were not, is hung up on the language. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. Sure, sure. I think like you're they right. Just truly, I just think they truly, truly weren't hung up on the language as much. Which, mm. although, which, which isn't to say that there weren't people criticizing the portrayal of queer people in the show That's, at all. Oh, there absolutely yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. of course, of course. But I think that, like, the language around it, I think it, it was, was going to pretty yeah. much be set in stone, you think, going on to Broadway. I, I think around Angel, I can't imagine that there was a much... Uh, agitation around. Yeah. I also think that the character of Angel, and we're going to see this, you know, throughout the show, there is something about the way that that character is written and, and, and especially performed where Angel has such an inherent like sweetness and, 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 and quality and like just inherent goodness that you believe who this character is, even if the writing around the character isn't always 100% clear. At least that's, yeah. that's what I find whenever I watch this show is like, I yeah. just really care about Angel and I want him to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very, 
yeah. it's hyper it's a hyper specific character and i do think that giving him a song like today for you like really goes a long way towards yeah. getting you to uh, care because it, it's it's such a it's it's such a it's such a blast of character you know uh, and it's also incredibly specific so just to move things forward a little bit here uh benny talks to mark and roger and offers them a pretty sweet deal actually because uh <laughs> yeah. maureen has been saying that she's going to do this big protest at the lot by the building that they live. And Benny says, hey, look, if you can get Maureen to call off that protest, which will be good for me because I own the building, you get free rent for life. <laughs> yeah, and a job in my new uh, cyber cafe. It's called Cyberland. It's Cyberland, cyber yeah. Art. Cyber, cyber arts. Cyber arts. I think that's right. Cyber arts. Yeah. Cyber arts. And it, I'm just yeah, I'm watching I, I this worked going. there in 2019. It was called Zero Space. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Uh, but it, it genuinely, it genuinely like, oh, he is just a Power Rangers villain. Cyber mm. arts sounds like an evil organization. And he's, yeah, I'm starting it with my friends Ivan Ooze and Rita Repulsa. Yeah, he, he has he has a bit where like you learn that Benny has this history like he was the third roommate with Mark and Roger and he used to like espouse all the beliefs of this bohemian lifestyle but has married rich and is sort of sold out in in their opinion in Mm -hmm. in sort of the the big Gen X blanket term of selling out yes Uh, and he's just like hey you guys could sell out too and then you'd be set for life and they're like no we have ideals and we'll name them now and this is something that I think we ought to talk about too is like the idea of selling out versus being true to one's creative self or art or whatever, Mm -hmm. which I think now for people coming up in this generation is a distinction that just does not exist anymore, period. Mm -hmm. Period. Because honestly, the, the material pressures are so immense that you can't afford to not sell out. But that wasn't the case in, I guess, 1992 for some people, at least. Because also the in that period of time, there was still a subculture. Right. And there was not... <laughs> yeah. um, social media mm-hmm. that you yeah. can use to platform yourself into visibility out of your subculture. And I think like part of selling out has to do with holding true to a certain set of principles or standards that are part of being in a subculture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And walking that line of like being true to those principles, those aesthetics, those ideals, and also sort of supporting yourself materially or securing material foundation for your community or your mm-hmm. family or whomever. Yeah, there's there's sort of you you it can get so self-defeating when you're focusing on just this idea of authenticity. Right? It, it's like you, you you sort of trap yourself in like this sort of ever enfolding level of gotchas. Well, you 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 say this and yet you're you're here. You say this and yet you're here um, and you say this and yet you're platformed in this way by these people at this time doing this thing. There are ways that information travels, that art travels, that aesthetics travel that are are always going to sort of undermine that point. If that is the only point you're ever making that I think is really Interesting. And it is interesting that like now now the concept is just so, so foreign. Yeah. Like the, these these sorts of ideas of, of selling out, of, of staying in your bohemian apartment, things like that are just out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that and I guess that that's in some ways what the musical is about is a, a little bit about the contradictions of it, because it's like, yeah. no, you don't want to live in an apartment where you have to like burn wood to have heat. Yeah. yeah. But then there's but then it's like, well, let's go open a cafe in Santa Fe and be like small business owners. <laughs> right. Yeah. Santa yeah. Fe, yeah. Santa Fe is a very expensive place to live. Right. <laughs> like if you want to go to New Mexico and start a cafe, there is a thousand other cities you could go to first 
where you are not going to have to like but maintain do they rhyme kind of- as easily as Santa Fe? <laughs> and also, like Mark ends up going to work for Buzzline. Yeah. But like, but what would but what would he rather do than that? He wants I mean, to make his little documentaries yeah. and screen them for four people, Michael. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> it's really interesting when you when you really start to like tease this stuff out. Yeah. Like, and it's a, and the same question I ask today when many of these issues come up around authenticity, selling yeah. out, yeah. success, whatever you know, when I look at my own career and sort of like how far I've come and like, what would my, you know, 23 year old self who was living in this old lady's bungalow style house in the middle of Jamaica, Queens mm-hmm. on the second floor who had to take a bus to the tr- the E train or the F train and then ride another hour to get to the city to do my shitty job at, you know, the New Amsterdam theater. Right. Like, you know, what would I, he make of my life today, mm. which is not, I don't live in like luxury or anything, but I have a much more comfortable life today than I did then. Yeah, and yeah. I try to at the same time adhere to my artistic ideals, often to a fault and not without great struggle. Yeah. To hold yeah. on to the sort of subversive quality of my work while at the same time trying to make money to survive and maybe even have a little extra over for luxury. Yeah. I, I think that part of maybe what frustrates me about rent because there's a lot of things that I love about the show and a lot of things that frustrate me about it is how, you know, the point that you make about, yeah, like sticking true to your principles, like really making your art, staying subversive. Those are things that matter. But when we see the art that Mark and Maureen <laughs> and to an extent Roger are making, it yeah. sucks. It just fucking sucks ass. There's nothing yeah. interesting or subversive about it. And right. So, well, and even the joke about Roger is that he just keeps writing Musetta's waltz without right, realizing right. it. I had this weird sense of what it's all going to become. Like if you go beyond the musical, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I know what it's gonna what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Roger is going to I mean Mark is going to become like Pod Save America. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Or Chris Hayes or somebody yeah. like that. Yeah. Like that's like where all of that is is actually naturally heading. Like Joanne and Maureen are going to become like it's all heading toward a certain kind of bourgeois liberalism. Oh yeah, no, jo- Joanne is like gonna... installations that are like advertisements for Nike and things like that. With, you know? with yeah. Maureen, yeah, no. Yeah. Jo- what, what, Joanne's gonna like become a, a, a well-established public defender and move her ass to Georgetown with Maureen and Maureen's going <laughs> right to spend now. her time thinking about the days that Georgetown was really gritty or something yeah. like that which doesn't actually yeah. exist. Well, that's yeah. the interesting right. thing too is like the this this discussion of like gentrification they never use that term mm-hmm. in in this musical but like talking about the authenticity of the like white middle American artists who have moved in there uh, over the last decade when that's that's step one baby that's that's already yeah. moving that needle on gentrifying a neighborhood and I thought actually like Jonathan Larson captured a really true yeah. real moment yes. when the homeless lady is like you got a yes. dollar mm-hmm. and he doesn't yes. her yes. Yes. no yeah. no he does sucks dude like he just <laughs> and sucks. she's also just like I am not I am not here to be your art and I right. think that Rent yeah. in this time watching it it was the first time that it really clicked for me that like rent is also very fundamentally about the limits of art as activism mm-hmm. because oh, yes. all all of these characters think that they are changing and saving the world by the simple act of existing and doing their yes. art 
And, but there's just a couple moments in the show where there's pushback against mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. right? In a very yeah. interesting way. And it's none almost of those though, remained in the movie. The movie's just very oh, sentimental about yeah, all of it. Yeah, it's just very right. sentimental. But this one was just like, Jonathan Larson was even like investigating his own culpability in right. like the destruction yeah. of this neighborhood, which I think is very interesting. But it also doesn't yeah. quite get there, right? Because no. No. The, the, what we end up seeing is, for instance, just, just to point up a couple more scenes that happen here, yeah. Uh, Mark shows up to sound tech Maureen's forthcoming performance art installation. He and Joanne dance the tango Maureen. This is a fun number. Uh, yeah. It's really fun. I, I really like their dynamic. The two yeah. of them together. Yeah. It's just, you know, both of them uh, revealing that by being in a relationship with Maureen, they both have a lot of things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this takes us from here off to a meeting with the AIDS support group. And mm-hmm. this scene is really interesting, right? Because yeah. Mark barges in on this meeting after they've started singing their daily affirmations or whatever. Yeah. This is also where we get No Day But Today, where they sing yeah. uh, in unison about how they need to live life by the moment, you know, really grab it by the throat. And, Carpe diem. And there are yeah. things about this song that, for me personally, being somebody who lives with a life life-threatening illness, when I heard No Day But Today for the first time, I was like, this is my fucking shit. This is it. Like, this <laughs> yeah. remains yeah. for me the best and most powerful song from Rent. Because reason says I should have died three years ago. However, we also should talk here about how this depiction of the support group sort of flattens the radical nature of actual aid support groups, which were Mm. also demonstrated to ongoing community action, to protest um, and to challenging power structures and instead just makes it sort of like this nice, warm, fuzzy thing where everybody talks about how it's so good to be alive for another day. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Yeah, it was much yeah. fuzzier originally. Mm. Um, I think somebody must have seen like a workshop and they told Larson that like you're missing all the anger and like rage mm-hmm. that comes with having this and how frustrating it can be to live with this disease. And so that's why he added the how do you feel today? And the guy right. who was just like, you know, uh, best I felt all year, but he's just like very dismissive about it. And I feel like that kind of gestures towards it. But you're mm-hmm. right, Josh, like at no point are they talking about like, you know, actually taking any action against the power structures that are trying to like actually, you know, kill them. Yeah. Um, it is just about uh, feeling OK and being good and like being taken care of, which is an aspect of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's yeah. not the whole um, thing. Yeah, it's not the whole thing. Yeah. But this is for me, a little bit goes back to my question about like how embedded in issues around HIV AIDS he was right yeah because i think i think that you're right but i'm also like if he were to try to take that on and add that into the stew yeah of this it would have like really tipped the the musical truly would have tipped over and i and i'm (laughs) and i don't know like how personal his investment was in 
the issue to really take that on. I mean, which is yeah. not to say, which is not to say that he should not have like addressed it in some way. But I can imagine as a writer being yeah. like, I can only take on so much when sure. I've already there's taken nine on so plots much. already happening in yeah. this thing. Right. We gotta yeah. keep it moving. Well, and yeah. it's all hanging on on the framing of Lob OM too, yeah. right? So you need right. to make that work. It, it's <laughs> This, this would also be a good point to note that uh, the writer Sarah Shulman uh, has for a very long time accused Jonathan Larson of plagiarizing very parts loudly. of her book, yeah. People in Trouble, which I read this morning just because I wanted to settle the score for myself. Yeah. Honestly, I don't think he does. I, I the, the, the book has fairly little to do with Rent, but it is possible that he lifted a few inspirations mm. from that book. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but yeah. Shulman was more on the ground with this stuff than Larson was. Yeah, and she was very, very involved with ACT UP. Right. And I also think, and she's also a theater writer. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I think that, like, there's also probably, she would probably have sharp criticisms of just the depictions themselves. And she has. And if you want to read more about those uh, criticisms, we will link that in the show notes as well so that you can take a look at it. I don't feel qualified to, like, totally speak to it, but it's definitely a conversation that's worth having. So after the AIDS group, uh, we get out tonight. This is Mimi's big song, right? She comes in. She looks amazing. Yeah, she's wearing that blue spandex. what Mimi is, right? She's the flame that's going to, you know, coax Roger out of his, like, self-imposed isolation mm-hmm. from the world, and this is the song to do it. It reminded me of, like, come on, baby, now it hurts so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. that kind of 80s rock that mm-hmm. yeah. feels like the 50s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know? Yeah. This then brings us back into Christmas bells are ringing once more. We get a very fight the system Gen X thing where these guys come out yeah. and they're, they're, they're cops. Yeah, and and that, that's an interesting thing, too, is like this whole first act is set over just like Christmas to New Year's. Yeah, it's a week. Right. Which is, again, not something that happens in the movie. The movie, the whole movie is sort of spread out over a oh, year interesting. change. But here everything is like really immediate. You know that things are sort of building up to an event that's going to occur at the closing of the act, right? There's going to be an increased police presence. There's going to be a riot. This is, of course, reflecting what happened in Alphabet City at the end of the 80s, where there was a curfew that was implemented that was just a way to, you know, uh, torment homeless people, basically, and run them out of the neighborhood. Yeah. Um, And it led to a riot. Yeah. And, and this is also where we get the interaction we previously mentioned between Mark and uh, a local person who's like, hey, can I have a, have a dollar? He's like, I don't yeah. have one. Um, and yeah, the, the interesting stuff here about sort of the tensions that are endemic to this show that I feel like it wrestles with, but never quite entirely resolves. But but yeah. but, cert- but also it's like it's doing so many things because after this, we also yeah. get opening up a restaurant in Santa Fe. This is Tom Collins singing about his amazing dream you know you teach 
I teach computer age philosophy, but my students would rather watch TV. America. 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 You're a sensitive esthete. Brush the sauce on to the meat. You could make the menu sparkle with rhyme. You could drum a gentle drum, and I could seek guests as they come, chatting not about Heidegger but wine. Let's open up a restaurant in Santa Fe. Our labors will reap financial gain. We'll open up a restaurant in Santa Fe. He wants out of NYC. He envisioned Santa Fe as the great place that he could do this. As every New Yorker does, everybody in this fucking state, they know one place in New Mexico and they've all been there. They've all been yeah, to Santa Fe. That's right. I know somebody opened a B&B there. In Santa Fe? <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Off the back of this, we get I'll Cover You, which I think is one of the sweetest songs in the show. This is a yeah. love ballad between uh, Collins and Angel. I belong to discover something as If you're cold and I'll you're lonely with a thousand sweet kisses, you've got one nickel only with a thousand sweet kisses. When you're born, I'll, I'll cover you with a thousand sweet kisses. When you're I'll cover you. Oh, I'll cover you. It's one of those songs that like reminds me of like those duets that like Barbara Streisand used to do, like oh, with yeah. like Brian Adams or somebody like that. Yeah, yeah. and so I, and I have like a deep affection for it in that of men and women singing together, which mm-hmm. does not happen anymore. And I do think that it's effective. I always feel like when you're watching their arc together, that that everything is always through the lens of they're going to die or like they're headed yeah. toward death or that death yeah. is like part of their love. It just seems like it's just carry like it's just carry that flame mm-hmm. sort of from the beginning to end. Well, yeah. and, and this is also a common criticism that people have of Rent, which is that, you know, Angel and Collins are really the heart of this show. They're a gay couple. And it's it's ultimately that relationship that is doomed, whereas the protagonists both have you know straight relationships and, and they make it out just fine. I think that's kind of almost like a post facto criticism, because I mm. think Rent became like identified as like the gay musical. Right. The only the only one, the only musical that's ever been gay. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, I don't think that was Jonathan Larson's intention. Of writing it right i mean he does include hiv in this uh and, and and does so through like these heterosexual uh intravenous drug user characters and through gay characters but i i i think he was trying to make something that just had a broader uh brush to it that was like look at this look at th-. i think he was looking There's at so something. many plot lines yeah yeah mm-hmm. i think he was looking at something that was kind of like a, a french new wave or even like i am a camera or cabaret where you're kind of looking at a lot of people at a specific point in time in a specific neighborhood and just seeing all of the things that that they are up to yeah and so i i think that that criticism i don't think it's necessarily unfair but i do think sometimes it's people walking into it thinking oh yeah this is supposed to be the show that sure that, is about acceptance and and love is love and all of that and it's like not really right mm. <laughs> like i don't yeah. think that was the intent i th- cuz i think there is a very profound difference between rent the show that we watched and rent the symbol rent the right? cultural and phenomenon what, yeah. yeah what yeah. what rent became afterwards i think is actually very different than mm. what's in the show itself yeah. um it became sort of a dead poet society 
like uh, empty sort of uh, no day but today became sort of the right. rallying cry and it lost I think the specificity of how it's used in the show mm. because mm-hmm. most of these characters don't really seize the day when they have the chance it takes them a long time to actually finally get around to doing the seizing of the day that's what the whole show's about and how difficult that can be but everyone kind of uses just kind of an empty like platitude of oh yeah well no day but today yeah. just go out and you know do the thing I'm also just thinking again about putting it in the time that it was in of like what the the tension that might have existed for Jonathan in 1995 let's say right of like yeah. I'm putting all of these gay queer trans cross-dressing whatever you all yeah. of that umbrella of these characters on stage and exploring their relationships in ways that might have been not as popular with audiences or like it's not like today where you can put all these things on stage and it's sort of old hat yeah. or it's not, yeah oh yeah it's like i'm just wondering i'm just i'm just trying to i'm just thinking like it's 1995 and there's Mimi and there's collins what do the neighbors say you know like yeah about just even seeing that which by today's standards would be like meh you know right the, the, yeah. the forbidden yeah. broadway version of rent the today for you is replaced with a song called too gay for you to hetero for me we agreed on a fee and a six-month guarantee plus a bonus if i dress up like a christmas tree now who could foretell i'd win awards as well but playing to the blue hair girls is candy rapper hell they keep expecting evita in all her glory not a drag queen tale or a lesbian story each bridge and tunnel booby said, I've got a show. They tell me, get a loyal friend. I just say no. Yeah, yeah I think I think you're hundred percent right. Like the, the portrayal itself in the time was fairly radical. Yeah, and I and I can imagine him and maybe even like Jeffrey Seller at that time, who is a gay man. Like I can imagine yeah. them being like nervous about it or right. Yeah. Or or wondering how far they could go or maybe thinking that this was going further than anyone could have imagined. And that which is something that I also relate to mm-hmm. with a strange sure. loop in the yeah. portrayals of gay queer life or yeah. expression and thoughts of like not knowing what the audience, how they would respond to being as sort of out there as I was being. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're always there can always be like a backlash. Did did you get did you get complaints, Michael? Were there were there, were there like a No, I mean that's the thing. No, I mean there have been people who have been like not into it, but like it was pretty warmly received when we first did it at Players Horizons and on Broadway as well. Yeah. But like, you know, every once in a while you'll get someone who'll be like, Oh, so like walkouts and oh mm. so offensive and oh, even wow. though like that we I make a joke of it right in the beginning of the show of like there will be butt fucking. Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, like it's not like there's nothing that's being hidden from you. If you're if you're gonna have a problem with this now, leave now. That didn't make people walk out. It was when things get more intimate and more sort of like grimy oh, around yeah. in with daddy the words like yeah i don't want to sit in the in the non-joke version of this yeah and so i can only just imagine that similarly like jonathan and his team must have felt like how far can we go with these depictions yeah. at this time given what 
the sort of zeitgeist of the world was. And the, the depictions of, again, just to just to pull it back to Angel and Collins, there's nothing jokey or on the nose about that portrayal. It's just expressing their love yeah. in, a, in a very honest way. Um, yeah. and it's honestly the same thing with, well, maybe, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, but Joanne and Maureen are also played pretty uh, straightforwardly, although I do think that it is a little bit leaning into stereotypes about like angry lesbians and that sort of thing. How like, and, and, and bisexual people. Yeah. yeah. Especially <laughs> bisexuals. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, they, they're still making it work, right? Uh, Joanne's yeah. trying to keep it all together. We're approaching Maureen's big performance. They go Christmas shopping. Uh, they buy some clothes. Local residents are looking for drugs and Maureen shows up in the midst of all this chaos to do her big performance about a cow that needs to jump over the moon. <laughs> Only thing to do. Only thing to do. Here's the eternal question of Rent for me. Is this performance supposed to be effective and good? I don't think so. Right. Like, like they have the jokes about her, you know, like whispering, oh, shit, like has something didn't right. work. And like, yeah, it, it yeah. kind of plays to me like a comedy magic routine, which is that it, it fails a couple times. And then it like once it picks up steam, like all of a sudden she does the magic trick of performing the thing. Right. I've seen a couple productions of Rent, and I think this one was the most effective at it. But some are just it's just a straight joke machine. Mm. She's terrible at this and like she should never have done it in the first place and then this recording I felt like by the end we are supposed to buy into the fact that this is effective and this is actually creating sort of a movement a movement uh, within (laughs) within this community this tent city like they do rise up in revolution right because of this performance piece and i i'm wondering what what do you what do what does everyone think Mm. like is is this good is this not good is it like the hamlet question of like is uh, you know is polonius and claudius behind the curtain or not is it something that each actor brings to their own interpretation i mean how do we feel about this for me this is i feel like there it's probably a little bit of both in that Mm. but it's it's hard it's hard to put for me to put my finger on it because it's clear to me that some of jonathan larson's point of view is like look how ridiculous this woman is Mm -hmm. but also yeah there's this idealism around riots or protests and that's actually the thing that's like confusing to me about this moment because Mm. i doesn't feel like joanne's performance art is actually connected to a specific group or organization or anything right and so i actually was sort of i'm sort of get a little lost in what exactly are they writing about? Like, and I get little mm-hmm. glimpses of it because you see the police and that sort of thing. Right. Which is why I, I'm curious if somebody does a version of this today, if they will lean into today's stuff around yeah. all of that. But I get a little lost in how this performance spurs a riot. Yeah, there's nothing. Because it doesn't tell you, like, the, here's, like, a tenants organization. Right. or right. Uh, or a group similar to ACT UP that deals with, like, housing rights or something. Yeah. Which is uh, wild because, you know, this this performance then takes us pretty much straight into La Vie Boheme, which is yeah. really the signature number of this show. And at one point <laughs> yeah. in La Vie Boheme, they all say, uh, ACT UP, fight AIDS. Right. So it's like, well, what what are we supposed to be taking away here from the way that they live? Are they actually agitating for meaningful organization action or are they just trying to live life in a quote-unquote bohemian way it's a little bit confusing yeah it's vibes i think but but it is totally vibes but like and it also (laughs) for me it sort of speaks unintentionally perhaps to 
the idea that some of these bohemian ideals are actually just about the individual. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And not really about the community because the only people whose housing you actually are even worried about are Roger and Mark. Right. So, like, I don't know. Are there other people in the building who are also going to be kicked out? Yeah, they're not forming a tenants union like yeah. <laughs> or, or anything like that. Yeah, I just like, imagine it's the two of them living in uh, the McKittrick Hotel, just the two of them <laughs> on like four right. floors by themselves. <laughs> it's almost like if, if, if Maureen was a real person, you'd see her like underneath an Adam Curtis narrative and hypernormalization because then of course after that and we'll get to this it becomes commercialized right yeah. right so yeah. mm-hmm. i that's one part that's always confused me is like what right like because the right. riot then becomes big news but for whom yeah because yeah. the, 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 yeah. from the storytelling perspective what happens here just laying out the narrative very clearly is that Maureen does her little thing, right? She sings about jumping over the moon. This causes all of the people in attendance to start mooing uncontrollably. uh, And Mm -hmm. they do not stop mooing, even when the police show up. While that is going on, over at the Life Cafe just down the block. Which is wild to me. (laughs) There's this like meeting between Benny and this developer or whatever at the Life Cafe. At the Life Cafe, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, it makes no goddamn sense. So many like late nights at the Life Cafe in college. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) what they're trying to do in this scene is they're trying to stage a a dinner that is so shocking that the guy who Benny is meeting with, uh, who is, I think, what his 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 father-in-law, he's going to be so shocked by these things that he'll never set foot in Alphabet City again. So when we get back. We'll talk about La Vie Boheme. We'll talk about some other exciting uh, parts of Rent. And we'll see what happens to these wonderful characters. Let me yeah. tell you, I we have a real treat for you today mm. going into the uh, interstitial. Uh, you know, we talked a lot today about how impactful Rent uh, was on a lot of us as teenagers mm. and, and younger folk. And there were obviously efforts to make a Rent school edition, right? Um, and that ended up happening around 2007. Uh, but as it turns out, the original producers of Rent reached out to a man named Dr. Samuel Bolt, DDS. Long-time listeners of the podcast will remember as the dentist from Long Island who no. wrote uh, the cut theme song for the Boss Baby film and did okay. a lyrical punch up of the revival of chess. Yeah, uh, of he recorded Famous a demo guy. of his pass at the 11 o'clock number, What You mm-hmm. Own, and decided to try to make it more relatable okay. to the teens who would be singing it. And as the acting undersecretary of the Dr. Samuel Bull CDS <laughs> Memorial Foundation, uh-huh. I managed to snag oh, a dead? copy of that demo. <laughs> okay. Please enjoy. Story, um. 
friggin' rule. The filmmaker 17. And the songwriter cannot drive. But I like Dinah and her hair. Tara doesn't know that I'm alive. Just broaden your shoulders. Just pinch your voice till you whine. And say fuck you to Hammerstein. You're singing a rock opera in a high school auditorium. You're singing a rock opera so your crush will notice you. Cause when you're singing a rock opera in a high school auditorium, you're freaking screwed. So the jocks may make their charm felt, throw their ball and call us gay. Watch them melt when we belt on A. What was it about that night? The basement in Tara Cooper's place. For once, the cool kids gave me but light. For once, I got to suck some face. Tara, I hear you. She's sitting right there. I'll ask you to prom. Tara, it's John. Call me a theater kid, but will you be my girlfriend? You won't. Oh shit, rejected in America. In a high school auditorium. Rejected in America. I guess we should have known. Cause when you're singing a rock opera. In a high school auditorium. When we left our protagonists, uh, there was an exciting performance art installation, and this performance art installation led to uh, a celebration of life at the Life Cafe in the East Village. Mm. And this is where one of the most famous numbers in the whole show comes in. This is La Vie Boheme, which is a celebration of life. And living and things of that nature. I don't think that there is another list song that has made it to Broadway or off Broadway that has listed quite as many things. Days of inspiration, playing hooky, making something out of nothing. The need to express, to communicate, to going against the grain, going insane, going mad. To love attention, no pension. To more than one dimension To starving for attention Hating convention Hating pretension Not to mention, of course Hating dear old mom and dad Michael, was this a song that, that like resonated with you when you first saw it when you were 16? Was it like, did, did no. you put it on the record? No, really? Right, okay. <laughs> I don't understand this song. Okay. Or rather, it doesn't hit for me. 
I mean, but I get that it's like a thing with people, but it's a song that I've always sort of skipped past, to be honest with you. Oh, that's interesting. So I know that why doesn't it work for you is kind of a weird question. Uh, but It's not. It, I don't know about working or not working. Sure. It's mm. just it never like it just didn't interest my ear. I personally think that the reason that people remember this song so much has more to do with the way that it is staged than with the song itself. Yeah, uh, I think that is that the last supper. I don't know of any number in rent where the staging is more intrinsically a part of the song than this one. Yeah, it's got a real musical theater kid energy to it, too, because Roger, who up until this point has just been a brooding rock god, is like bouncing his head along and mm-hmm. like having this like really fun, like cheesy time. And I think that that's what was most striking about this rewatch of it was just like how goofy all of them are being sort of at the same time. But I, I think. In terms of the list, I think it's it, it, the reason it, it like gets stuck, at least in my head, is that it's satisfying to be able to like do the rhymed list in mm. its entirety. Like there is it's kind of got like a Pokemon got to catch them all thing for just being able to like perfectly nail, you know, bisexuals, trisexuals, homo sapiens, carcinogens, hallucinogens, man, peewee, Herman. Like it like it makes my brain go pop. It makes my brain light up. Unfortunately, uh, you do refuse to do that on principle. Uh, because Spring Awakening has taken the place of this song in your mind. That's so. true. That's yeah. true. I only <laughs> I only sing Mama Who Bore Me. It kind of has a um, Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. kind of vibe to it. Another favorite of theater Where kids. It's like, how, how long right. can yeah. we make this? How much yeah. farther you know, can we that take It's just this? about yeah. like the let's go and go and go. And yeah, I think yeah, that yeah. like I just there's something in me that is... I'm like, all right. Yeah. (laughs) For me, part of what it is, too, is that the references are so fucking corny. Like, it it, it feels like they're saying all of these things that are supposed to be, like, exciting and iconoclastic. And it's like, yeah, beer brewed in local breweries. The Village Voice. It's like, I get it. Maybe those were iconoclastic at one time. Now it's just part of the mainstream. Is anyone in the mainstream, though? (laughs) (laughs) This is one where I'm, I'm part of me wonders if in 1995, if I'd been paying closer attention mm-hmm. i might have felt differently about it today because i'm just sort of like sorry i'm having many no go for it yeah, yeah. yeah. Please, it's, please it's also like because of what i had said before about wondering about the effectiveness of the protests mm. it makes me just wonder about just how countercultural these folks are yeah they do this song and all the things that they're listing they don't really feel countercultural to me They, I mean, they feel, you know, I mean, like they're making, he's like making references to Stephen Sondheim. Yeah, Stephen Sondheim, you know? Akira Kurosawa. Right. You, you know, know not, not, like, not underground things. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like there are things that actually many people would know, but because of like, I think who Jonathan Larson is and what his reference points were, he's also not a countercultural figure, I don't think. Right. And yeah. so there's something about the point of view of the song that's never quite settled with me. And so right. for it to then just be nine minutes of that yeah yeah the, we I didn't start, start to, the fire of musical yeah theater. oh my god that's such a good, i just start to sort of wonder like well what is what is the actual sort of like critique like what's the yeah. cultural like what's the like 
what's the real thing being satir- satirized here? Well, because the, the the thing that Mark says at the end of the number is uh, the opposite of war is what you said, Marks. As Marks <laughs> was famously quoted, um, the opposite no, of war isn't peace; it's creation. That doesn't really mean anything. That's kind of an aphorism. Oh, and another great point in the movie is they have Mark say that a second time later. Oh, it's like when Roger is walking out and like going to New Mexico or whatever, he's just like, "The opposite of war isn't peace; it's creation," and then walks out. What does that mean? What does it mean? Uh, it's very it's very hippie yeah. like that that feels mm. more like a like a hair thing you know it's just like it's about creation mm. man like it, it it feels like but in hair they were opposed to the war right yeah. the war yeah, yeah. like yeah. to Vietnam <laughs> like I don't I don't totally know what these people are opposed to other than their two friends getting evicted by their other friends. That's pretty much it. Anytime it's turned into like a, something that seems more global. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm like, I actually don't know what politics are at play here. Yeah. It, it, it it certainly can't be confused for any sort of an actual leftist critique, an actual Marxist critique. It is a Mark, Sit. Marcus, not gonna make that joke. It's um, a, I made it's the a joke. Coenist. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Marxism, Marxism, Cohenism. Is this anything? So, no. um, nope, certainly isn't. <laughs> so this number takes us into the intermission, and when we come back out of it, we get seasons of love. This is the anthem. This is the song that yeah. everybody knows from. Throw your hands up. Dramaturgically, is very interesting, right? Because none of the rest of the show is like this. Like the opening of the show is mm-hmm. not like this. The, you don't see characters singing this song. You are seeing the actors step out onto the stage yes. yeah. all of a sudden in the middle of this and sing the song, uh, which is part of why I think Columbus had the idea of putting it at the very beginning of the movie because he didn't know how to make that work in the framework of something without an intermission. Well, and yeah. the thing is, it actually could work at the beginning. I mean, it shouldn't be at the beginning, but yeah. in terms of what it's doing narratively, it is saying Everything you're about to see from here on out is going to happen over the course of a year, Um, which would also more or less be the case if you were to put it up top. Because, again, the first act takes place over the course of a week. The second act Mm -hmm. takes place over the course of a year. What really struck me about this one that I didn't realize, I guess, before is that the solos in Seasons of Love are not done by the main characters. It's yeah. two the ensemble, ensemble members. Yeah. My sense of watching it, because I had for some reason, I had thought this song only happened at the end from mm. my memory of it. So mm. when I saw that it was happening in act, top of Act Two, I was like, oh, right. My sense of it was that he probably it seemed like he was going for something cinematic and that wanted to give a sense of, like to zoom out to see like yeah. the larger world it's like many of the songs in the show it's not really pushing the story forward and so in that regard i don't find it to be that effective but it's in this sort of rock operatic mode that we're in right it's like taking you into the sort of like emotion 
of the conflict of where the characters are to sort of get you back into the story. Because otherwise, how would he have opened? Like he opens the musical with like the, the rousing opening number. Like how would he have gotten you back into the mix? Right. You know, yeah. Without, that, without that it really, feeling. Yeah. That really like sort of like draw you in and it's such a beautiful song it's an iconic song mm-hmm. I, that i i feel like probably that was part of the impulse it's well, like how do we really sort of emotionally pull people back into this story yeah and he's asking the audience that question right mm-hmm. he's literally yeah, asking yeah, how right. do you measure a year please tell right. me the part that comes in that will jump out at you as you're listening is that they sing the way that she died is one of the, those big crescendos from the ensemble it's like well, well who died now in the show, we it's New Year's Eve. A week has passed since the events of the previous stuff. Mark's footage of that riot has gone viral. He's getting calls from the network. Yeah, being and like, this hey, is the come. old days where like this is film. So he, right. he had to sell it. Right. right? This, yeah. this wasn't the day of, of someone going on Twitter and being like, hey, can I use this? And you're like, sure. Thumbs up. This again is um, where we get a bit of a back and forth about like selling yeah. out and that whole idea. And Alexi Darling. Mark Cohen, Alexi Darling from Buzzline. Ooh, that show's so sleazy. Your footage of the riots, A1. Feature segment, network, deal time. I'm sending you a contract. It's really lovely, and it's stuff that, again, you miss if you're just listening to the highlights. Uh, yeah. These these voicemails that keep uh, occurring are all done recitative and keep adding and building and are, despite being that way, just so different from each other. Like, they... they, they they do seem to be like crescendoing to something big, which we will get to at the end. And Michael, you had mentioned, too, with with your own work that you came back to this and you were surprised that, oh, yeah, these voicemails, they 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 had an impact on my own work in a way. I just like to remind you periodically that I love you, son. If you ever should find you need encouragement then you call me son. Yeah, I, you know, a big part of a strange loop has to do with the main character, Usher, getting sort of voicemail messages from his parents. And also, even in this sort of Alexi Darling section, there's a, a portion of a strange loop that's where he's talking to what I call the guardians of musical theater centrism, who are <laughs> and these yeah. figures, mm-hmm. one of whom is, and also like his agent, mm-hmm. you know, Agent Fairweather, who's like trying to get him to sell out. Yeah. Um, to Tyler yeah. Perry. So I must have absorbed that like yeah. over the years because I had never made that connection until I watched uh, this pro shot. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty effective like way of framing it up. The problem is that the stakes of it, again, to, to what we've been talking about all along, the stakes feel a little bit muddled because is Mark selling this footage actually an example of selling out? What does selling out even mean? It's all a little bit confusing. And Mark is sort of now describing the way that things look in this world, too. The vacant lots, all that sort of thing. This is really, too, when you realize just how much the material conditions in this country and in this city have shifted since this musical was made. And I just thought that was really interesting. And it's why I think a lot of modern revivals of the show that try and capture the energy of the original are not nearly as successful Mm -hmm. because I think they just did a performance of Rent down in D.C. And one of the people in it was not alive at the end of the millennium. He was born, I think... In, or maybe he was like born in 1999. Oh, and sure. It's just it's one of those things like when you watch a movie, like a period piece of like from like the 17th century and you see somebody's face like, well, that that's a face that knows what a smartphone is. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just like you can, there's just a difficulty with capturing 
I think, the rage and the energy that pulsates mm. under this musical in a modern context. Yeah, it remi- I just actually, for the first time the other night, watched the movie Network. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, oh, right. Like that, even I, who am old enough to kind of remember, was a little bit like, oh, like the thing that it's satirizing, like it, it even took me a second to like look into it that I can imagine... Yeah. If I were younger of like what like what's the sort of like what's the problem here? Like, yeah, they're putting all this like great stuff on TV. It's like entertaining. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think to the point of like, you know, something being a period piece versus being updated when they mounted network on Broadway, they just tried to make it be like in the present day. And it felt. It was bizarre. I hated so weird. It. I oh hated my god! It I'm so totally so with you. I hated it. It made me so upset. And I'm Wait, you didn't like the ending involved. where we saw the inaugurations of every president for the last fifty uh, years? I was so upset. I hated it so much. Somebody, I'm, some, I'm going to hear about this somewhere. Of like, how dare you say this again? <laughs> no, 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 Michael. It. We are, we are very thrilled that Eva Von Hove is going to be uh, mounting a strange loop. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I can't God. I can't wait to see how many screens he has to it. And I was just in hell every second. Every fucking second. And the yeah. screens. Oh sorry. Uh, I just that it like triggered me. Like Oh, that. do not apologize. No, I am, please. We, I am we are more we are alive uh, than I have been in years. No, so let's uh let's move right on then. We get Take Me or Leave Me, classic lesbian anthem. It's the last song that Jonathan Larson composed for rent. It's such a fun song. Like there's such a there's such a cool dynamic at the core of it. It is a will they won't they mm-hmm. song that is catchy as hell. I really like this song. And again, there are problems I think with how lesbians are portrayed in this show, but I I think this number is a real winner. There's something interesting in the second act where it's it's kind of like chess in a way. Uh, where like the story kind of stops happening for a bit here Mm -hmm. and we just get a bunch of songs but where it differs from chess is that like it keeps moving there is a momentum to it even though there's not necessarily like a sort of causal or logical progression from one scene to the next because like this scene where we're just hanging out with joanna marine is just like okay we're here now let's get this song and then we'll go to the next thing yeah i think it's well grounded in who these characters are and what their motivations are it makes sense in this place yeah i think it's interesting that you you kind of just don't care like it just keeps like it keeps moving it feels very like this second act feels very breezy in a way that it very easily could have just fallen apart or yeah. just stopped dead because there are so many plots happening at once and it's everybody selling selling out you're seeing you're seeing sort of the the ways in which the personal relationships are being in impacted by sort of these economic capitalist yeah. mm-hmm. decisions that they're all making as supposed bohemians. Yeah. Right. yeah. And in doing so, they're also drifting further apart from their community, from each other, right. which is the right. important thing that will it will cause everything to sort of clash once we get to the funeral. Yes. And we see this clash in the form of without you. This is a really beautiful number where Mimi and Roger just sort of like sing about how tough it is without having each other in their lives. This is one where I really think that Michael Greif did a good job with the staging, 
where there's these three parallel tables that are on stage that are being used as like beds and also spaces. And so you see how sort of these relationships are folding or unfolding in parallel with each other. The Mimi Roger relationship, the Joanne Maureen relationship and the Angel Collins relationship. And as we get to the end of this number, we see that Angel has fallen incredibly ill and at this point basically can't do anything without the support of Collins. Everyone else in the scene gets to sing, but Collins and Angel don't. Right. You just see them act everything out. And I yeah. think one of the benefits of the pro shot is that it's able to frame them. So you s- it focuses on what they are doing, which I feel like if you're just watching it on stage, mm-hmm. that would get lost a little bit. And Columbus puts this into a montage uh, in the mm. movie adaptation and actually uses this as the opportunity to show Angel's final moments. Like okay. this is the song where Angel dies in the film. But in the musical, we get a song called Contact. idea what to do with this song yeah this is really again i think it's very effective what the tonal whiplash does but with the actual song contact oh i don't (laughs) (laughs) so when i was a 16 year old watching it i definitely didn't know what it was but that was connected to me not putting the dots together about aids And so watching it this time, what I took away from it is that it just felt to me like he or they, they, because who's to know whether this was something that was added later or like, I don't know at what point this song Mm -hmm. came in process. It felt like they wanted to have a moment of showing everybody having sexual connections because that's not really something fully seen prior in that like yeah. and since yeah. so much of the show is about like AIDS and stuff it just seemed like they wanted to have a moment of sexuality yeah yeah it yeah. just it's so weirdly placed yeah it is weirdly placed because you would think that that it would come earlier but mm-hmm. they want to have a moment of like bodies touching and it, it and it, it's interesting enough I started to think about a similar moment in company oh god oh dear oh, oh. I like that I Yeah, TikTok. TikTok. Yeah. Again, it was another moment of zooming out and sort of being mm. cinematic. Yeah, put it, put them all under a sheet. Have them all do an impression of a ghost. Yeah, and, it's uh, like he, he wants to depict performance art again. And also, like, yeah. se- and also sex somehow leading to death. Yeah, the connection which there. Obviously, that ex- is made explicit in the staging when Angel puts on the, the sheet. Yeah, so basically yeah. what happens is you've got all these, all of the actors are saying sexually explicit things, singing sexually explicit things under this big sheet. Angel rises up out of it as if the sheet is sort of a, a, a dress or something. 
Like uh, a and he's Sarah kind of moment. And he's singing today mm-hmm. for you, tomorrow for me. And on the final, it's over. Over. It's over. It's over. It's over. Colin says it's over in a very sad way. It's over. Letting us know now in combination with the staging that Angel's yeah. gone. He's dead. I've seen other stagings of this too, because it, it literally is just a single line where Colin says it's over. Yeah. And it's supposed to mean that. And we go into the funeral and and Angel is sort of slowly walking around upstage and then off. But I remember the first time when I first heard about Contact, because, again, my my point of familiarity was the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Looking up on YouTube in like 2009, some bootleg of a of a tour of Rent or something like that. And they staged it a little bit more, I think, effectively, where it's like Angel is like in the doorway about to leave, you know, silhouette of light. It's mm-hmm. over exits right then. Sure. Yeah. But either way, it's it's a I think a, a very strange way because this is the central death of the show. This right. is the the yeah. the major tragic moment because we don't have an actual death of Mimi at the end, like in the opera La Boheme. Yeah. And so for it to be abrupt like this, it's hard to it's hard to even like read it as a moment where where she dies. Yeah, well, and the other thing that's kind of strange, too, is that Collins then reprises I'll Cover You here. I've to discover something as true as this is. Yeah. So we'll beautiful and it's heartbreaking and it also kind of feels like the show's over but it's not we have miles to go out of this it's so heart-wrenching and i think a lot of it just has to do with like that thing that music can do where just even certain chords can yeah. activate those very emotional places and yeah I, I i guess michael i wanted to ask you about about the music behind this because it does utilize a lot of gospel and as someone who has notoriously written a gospel play because that's what the people want um <laughs> i i was wondering if you could speak sort of uh i i know almost nothing about composition at all but like what makes this song so emotionally devastating musically like how 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 does he pull this off here i think that there are just like some chord changes that happened that are are really poignant and i and if memory serves me this particular reprise is a little bit slower um and more and it is more sort of dirge like taking the audience's familiarity Mm -hmm. with the song that's so much about their love and then putting it in this other musical context that Mm -hmm. feels more like a funeral i think just like does the work of telling you that like love has died you know because because i'll cover you in the first act is like a it's like a bomb yeah right and 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 if you're if you are someone who has somehow avoided the rest of rent and Mm -hmm. and come into this fully fresh you don't realize that he's lighting a fuse there right it's like a a motif you know that he's Mm -hmm. sort of subverting 
and he sort of shifts the genres on it. He changes the tempo of it. I mean, the big thing is like you, AJ, you mentioned that till your heart has expired is almost a line you don't hear really because yeah, it's, it's all building it's up quick, to yeah. oh lover i'll cover you right it's like it's it's all keeping that speed and keeping that rhythm then till your heart has expired is like the sort of center point of this song right which is sort of this cry out it's actually now that you say that it reminds me of moulin Rouge. Mm. like oh yeah I will yeah. Love you till yeah. Yeah. Day. that's which is then she dies of tuberculosis right mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go yeah i mean moulin Rouge has uh, owes a lot i think to la, la m obviously as well and yeah, i think a lot in general yeah. 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 yeah yeah let's sort of get back up to date here on what's happening in mark's world because we really care yeah. about what's going on with mark <laughs> he has to watch it He's he has to watch it all, uh, Josh. He has to yeah, bear I witness. Know, I know. What do you how do you document real life? He's Bobby. He's really he is really Bobby. It is so interesting how Jonathan Larson. This is this is the part uh, Halloween where the group sort of breaks up right. and goes their separate ways. Like, right. Michael, as you said, like love has died. And it's not just like love between Angel and Collins. It's like love within this entire community has died. Like Angel was yeah. like the glue holding this all together. And without her there, it's just like. What do we cling on to anymore? Are we even still friends? Right. And, 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 you know, Mark's having a real hard time of it. He's just like, I, you know, I have problems too. And they're like, I mean, not really, Mark. It's, we it's all, so hard dying. when you have to like, work for a media company, isn't it? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's just he's so like, hard. He's not just someone who takes like footage of stuff. He's like on camera. He yeah, like he's hosts like, he's on soup like, now. He's like uh, he's like um, Bruce Norris's brother. Um, I did not know this about Bruce Norris. Oh my god, he was on MTV all the time. What is his name? John Norris. John Norris's brother is Bruce. I didn't know that. Wow. Um, (laughs) Or Tabitha Saran or, you know, Kurt Loder. Yeah, it's a very 1992 (laughs) ass kind of situation. Everybody's falling apart because their own love pales in comparison to what Angel had. Mimi is just done now. With all of this having fallen apart, we get Mark's signature number. something about the very close rhyme of America and Millennium and I know well, I think we've had this fight off mic yeah, it's not before. a real it rhyme, rhyme. Well, it's it's not even a near rhyme it's a not rhyme thank you it is it is a not rhyme but the way they sing the vowels it's like they're almost trying to make it rhyme and I'm just it doesn't it doesn't have to yeah, yeah. I'm so vindicated right now <laughs> <laughs> you've really you've really this has been brewing for like a year Michael thank this is you. the greatest day. Set <laughs> this is the greatest day of Brian Alfred's life. Um, but but there is like like this this to me embodies the anger and rage of mm. a, of like a generation like in musical theater like finally coming to the fore. Sure. Like this, I mean, yeah. what will come a couple years later? We're gonna be an American idiot. Yeah. 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 Yes. And who is the biggest Broadway baby of all? But Billy Joe Armstrong, who right. you know was hugely <laughs> sure. influenced by it. I mean, that's that's just true. I lo- I love this song as well. It's the one that drew me in because that's what um, Neil Patrick Harris sang okay, on the Rosie right. Donald yeah, show. Rosie. It's like it's complicated for me because like I I on one level I love the what the song evokes. 
Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, I, it, it's an, one of, another one of those songs that makes me question the politics underneath yes. it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it I, is because, the song about selling out. Well, that's exactly yeah. right. The, the, yeah. the note that I have here is I think ultimately the thesis of the show is is summed up in this number. And I think the thesis of the show is that individual choice to create one's life work with other similarly minded people sort of in community rather than selling out is the way that you counteract the pressures of American society, which I don't think is true. Uh, You know, I think you need to be a lot more materialist than that to really understand what's going on. The thesis of the show, I think, is that art can bring people back from the dead. Mm. Uh, (laughs) I think well, it's like it's almost as though it it does get really muddled right at the end, because I feel like if it ended with what you own, I would completely agree with you. Josh, but it gets it, it. It's very beholden, I think, to La Boheme, I think to its own detriment, mm. because it becomes a show about how making art is actually the most important thing to do. Sure. That that it's going to be the thing that changes the world. Well, and that that also pairs with one of the last lines we hear in Act One, that the opposite of war isn't peace, it's creation. So much of like the left or countercultural critique of America, of capitalism, especially in the 90s when politics like died and history ended. Right. Uh, is just critique of consumerism, right? And and it's it comes right out in that line. You're what you own, mm-hmm. right? It's all about phones and TV and and the the things that you have in your possession and the things that you've bought. Whereas art, I guess, if if it's being pitched as an antidote, is something that's a lot more ephemeral. And there's no way that it can get sucked up in the exact and same indiv- fashion and individual and personal yeah. and yeah. for yeah. me this is and it's, i'm glad that you raised that because i guess that's where i'm like i i don't I, I don't totally know what the thesis of the song is because 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 of that contradiction of like not understanding that art is a sort of singular thing that is then shared and then mm. open to interpretation can 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 be consumed in any number of ways by any number of people because today we sort of live in a moment where people believe that like the content is more important than the form mm-hmm. and and there's this belief that like that what the characters in rent believe that like their individual arts can sort of transform everything around them here's the thing though it can because Roger writes a song so bad it kills Mimi and then brings her back to life. <laughs> That's true. The, the other thing that I just wanted to point up that happens in here as well is the final call from the moms. This is back around Christmas time again, and they're all no. calling their kids. Which is my favorite song in the show. Roger, where are you? Mimi Chica. Roger, where are you? Roger, where are you? Mama. Roger, where are you? I think it's because there's a simplicity to it and like the parents they just love their kids and they're all singing and they all have different in some cases they're speaking in different languages but they're saying the same thing yeah a please call home Mm mm-hmm and I just find the simplicity of that to be really effective, especially because the kids are like all running all over the place and, and dying and like yeah. doing all of this like big world stuff. 
and doing protests and all these things. But meanwhile, every one of them comes from a family that cares about them. Yeah, uh, this is a thing that I, I, I always advocate is it has a bass baritone line. And uh, that's something, Michael, that you do also very effectively mm-hmm. in your shows is incorporate that into the score, because really a lesson that I think people took away from Rent, I think perhaps incorrectly, was that everything needed to be belted and that, you know, it mm-hmm. led to this sort of the race to the top of how high can people like, you know, scream, sing notes. Well, I think Steven Schwartz, I think Steven Schwartz mm. might have, have. Yeah. Have oh, no, he also that. definitely, definitely helped. Set the course um, of that. And Adina yeah. was like the, yeah. the, the canary in the coal Athena, mine. The yeah. canary in the coal mine who sort of carried it from rent to. Yes. This is all Adina's yeah. fault. <laughs> and, you know, also, I think like just musically, the quartet is like well done and mm-hmm. effective and especially in sort of leaning into the emotion of of the parents sort of wishing the kids would call home. Some of the questions that we've asked, you know, over the course of talking about like, well, what about contact? What about why start with seasons of love? Like it's many of these moments are like what Mark is doing as a filmmaker. They're snapshots. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're like, they're like what you're, you're sort of watching these like almost filmic like moments from a day in the light whatever they say the lyric is in seasons of love like yeah it's snapshots yeah, yeah. and yeah. it from different like sometimes they're close-ups sometimes they're wide angle shots and that particular moment is like a, a nice little yeah. close-up the last snapshot that we get is of maureen and joanne showing up with a sick and delirious mimi in their arms she's been yeah. living on the street again roger sings a song so bad that it kills her but then he sings. It took him a year to write it. But it then, took him a year. But then, and then it turns out all he had to do was was actually play Musetta's Waltz, that's right. which he'd been avoiding. Then he avoiding plays Musetta's Waltz, he comes back yeah. to life. Yeah. Mimi's yeah. alive. No day but today reprise happens. Basically, Mimi says that Angel sent her back. Well, and it's worth noting that right, the thing that that nearly kills Mimi is not AIDS, right? She yeah. like almost she's either overdosing or dying right. of exposure, or right. some combination right. of the two. And I yeah. think that's really interesting. I think that's something that people sort of falsely remember about the show. Yeah, no, she got put out on the street and because she's exposed to the elements, it does a number on her body. That's right. I mean, we we have now talked about the whole thing. And big question that I sort of have for us here coming to the end of our discussion is Rent is a show that when you talk about like the American musical theater canon is one of the probably top five shows that people talk about. It, it has yeah. unquestionably shaped the musical theater landscape. It is one of those touchstone shows that everybody talks about. Yeah, I I mean, I think Rent was like the first show that really tried to grapple with putting like 90s grunge on stage or like pop in this very particular way on stage. You know, Michael, as you said, hair also a huge like putting rock on stage. Yeah, for for the baby boomers. Yeah. Yeah. And in this very sort of revolutionary way. And I think Rent uh, offered a similar inflection point. I mean, the thing I got revisiting it was just how electric the staging was and how great Michael Grive's staging was and what a great vehicle that was for so many years. It ran for 12 years. It was the 11th uh, longest running Broadway show of all time as of this recording. It is kind of a shame that 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 vehicle doesn't exist anymore. More, that mm. You can't go and like see this thing in a time capsule um, because I did see the revival and it did not quite capture that same magic that this staging in particular did. It's interesting to see how people have tried to like update it too. in the UK. There was a, a rather infamously ill-advised revival called Rent Remixed. 
That came out in 2007. What? That one spawned, I I just remember back when it happened, there was sort of a legendary Broadway world thread about it because everyone was so, let's say, artistically offended by it. Hmm. Like, it just sucked. Yeah, I think think the value of this show now does lie in the fact that it is a time capsule, that it is a part of, like, you're not going to update hair, right? You're not going to try to make hair about... 2005 or 2025 it's stuck in the time that it's supposed to be made and it's it's value i think comes from the ability that that you can reevaluate that time and those perspectives using this piece of art yeah yeah i'm just the thing i'm struck most about is like i think there's a quite a lot of musical theater writers who owe quite a lot to jonathan larson and sort of the styles that he was working in and and bringing a kind of rock sensibility that he sort of pioneered like to the stage it, it, allow, it allowed for people to paint with a different brush than they would have necessarily been able to. Yeah, especially in musical theater, like he, it's like before him, there wasn't really people trying to like, and he, similar to Lin-Manuel and other, mm-hmm. me and others, whatever, like are part of a, feel very much part of a, a theater tradition, but trying sure. to update it in some way. And, tr- and and I think like he just like this, because like also when you go and listen to Tick, Tick, Boom, yeah, I like when I listen to it, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so many musical theater writers who like they're writing this today. The style, the characterizations that you, that are so common whenever you hear something that has like a sort of rock idiom to it. Yeah. It comes directly from Jonathan Larson. Yeah, I don't know if we've had another like stylistic watershed on, on the magnitude of Rent since, since Rent, right? Yeah, like yeah. in the same yeah. way that we were talking about the, the French New Wave earlier this mm. week on Fancy Movie Time, <laughs> if you are a subscriber, it's almost even less than a style than it is like an approach. Like here's how yeah. we're going to approach this thing yeah. that in some way is going to incorporate a, a modern sensibility, but still a very like musical theater sensibility, right? In the same way that you can see in everything from bloody bloody Andrew Jackson to a strange loop. And uh, hey, speaking of a strange loop, uh, Michael, you are, well, first of all, (laughs) thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was such a treat, incredible conversation, and we really, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. A lot of our listeners are in the UK, uh, and so I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk a little bit about A Strange Loop, uh, which is currently receiving its premiere at the Barbican. And if there's anything else that you want to talk about, pitch, plug, whatever, go for it. Yeah, so A Strange Loop, my musical, which ran uh, off-Broadway in D.C. and on Broadway last year, uh, is currently playing in the U.K. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, it's about a fat black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an Usher at a Broadway show who is writing a musical about a fat black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works in a Broadway show <laughs> at infinitum <laughs> and is sort of cycling through his own self-perceptions. I'm really proud of the production that we have playing at the Barbican. The cast is doing an great, a great job. Usher is being played by Kyle Ramar Freeman who is one of our Broadway understudies. I actually got to see him go on and yes. he's incredible. He's, as he's doing such an, an even more incredible job at the Barbican with a British cast playing the thoughts. Okay. And so I highly recommend if you're in 
the London area, please go check us out. We run until September 9th. Amazing. And uh, if you want more of our show, The Worst of All Possible Worlds, go to patreon.com slash worst of all. Five bucks a month gets you access to lots of really great premium episodes, our whole back catalog, as well as fancy movie time with AJ and Brian. And you should absolutely go check out A Strange Loop at the Barbican. Yeah. If you are literally anywhere on that island, you, you need to go. Like just straight up saying it's a, it. It's yeah. a beautiful, it's a beautiful production. Um, and everybody's doing such top notch work. Hell yeah. Um, AJ, you want to take us home? So as we've mentioned before, Jonathan Larson tragically passed away when he was 35 years old. Had he lived, he would be 63 this year. Oh, wow. And that's, it's wild for me to think about and to think about all the shows that we didn't get that he could have written. Uh, Sondheim said that he had just started to figure out his voice and his talent and he was going to be a titan of the American theater and he ended up kind of being one anyway. And I think there that sort of vitality runs through Rent. Like, yes, it's become this sort of symbol of this very sort of cheesy form of musical theater, like the aphorism of no day but today. Just it, it kind of rings hollow. But when you watch the show, it feels more real than anything. And I think the reason for that is because he did put his whole heart and soul into it. And when you have a composer do that, like, let's say, a Jonathan Larson or a Michael R. Jackson, who is probably one of the greatest composers musical theater has ever seen in my opinion <laughs> um, you get checks in the mail <laughs> <laughs> um, you get you get this elevation of the art form and you get these like uh, uh, these huge steps forward for a medium that I love so much so please go out there write write your show change the world because you give us light and you give us hope in a world where everything is rent. <laughs> I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Brian's. And I'm the worst of all possible Josh's. See you next time.